Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. You asked for it week two. Week one, we talked about can we trust our Bible? And I was just reminded this week, I kind of did this deep dive on this kind of conspiracy-esque, uh, you know, post I saw on Facebook. And I just got to the point where I'm just like, I don't even know what's true anymore. You feel that way ever? You're just looking at the news, you're reading something online, you're just like, what is true? And in a world that has become so shady with information, aren't we grateful that we get to stand on the stable word of God that is unchanging, that is true, that we can turn to, we can trust our Bible. So we talked about last week. If you missed it, you should look it up. This week, what we're going to be looking at really is uh, a few different questions that came in um, along the lines that no one used this word, but it was along the lines of walking in victory. So it was the question of like, how do I kick this sin? How do I kick this habit that I just can't seem to get out of my life? I want to get rid of it and I can't. How do I do that? There are people who are asking, um, I just, I find my mind filled with and turning to these anxious thoughts. How do I actually cast my anxiety upon the Lord and get rid of it? How do I help a friend who's living this double life, right? I had someone submit a question that was like, I got a friend who's saying they're a believer and yet they're walking in this way that doesn't match. How do I help them? How do I speak to them? And all of those things really distill down to this idea of victory, victory. And I think victory is such a Christianese word that we love to use it, but I'm not really sure we know what we mean by it sometimes. That we love to stand on victory. We love to claim victory in Jesus' name. We, victory shows up in the songs that we sing. We sing about God's victory. But what do we actually mean when we're, when we're asking for it, when we're claiming victory in Jesus' name? You stand on that victory and what does it mean? Um, it does not mean that we have everything go the way that we would want it to go. Like victory, we do not have, because we're Christians, because we have a relationship with the God of the universe, does not mean that we have victory in everything. Amen? And, and like, but I think this trips us up a little bit as believers, maybe because of some teaching that we've heard before, that we link and we tie our victory to our faith. So we say, okay, I'm not experiencing victory because I'm not walking in enough faith. Or we tie our, our, our measure of victory to our, our behavior. We say, oh, well, if you weren't sinning, if your friend wasn't in sin, if you weren't near this person who's in sin, then you would experience victory. And, and we, we have this confusion around victory at best. And at worst, we have doubt. Because we, we're, we're claiming victory, we're praying for victory, we're standing on victory in Jesus' name, and yet we're so painfully aware that in our life, I'm not experiencing victory. And I have this relationship that's gone south that I never thought would go south. And I have this thing going on with my finances that I just can't seem to get a hold of. And I have this behavior that I just, I can't win against. Like it just keeps creeping up. And I have this thing that I keep turning to, even though I don't want to. And so I just want to say on the front of this message, we are not guaranteed victory over everything. And you, you need to look no further than the apostle Paul for this. 
The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthian church, he's, he's saying, I've been given this revelation. And the revelation that he's been given, been given is profound. It's the revelation that the gospel is not just for the Jewish people, but it's for the Gentiles as well. And so he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, not even Paul, you know, was, he's like, I, I might've gotten a little puffed up because this revelation, this word that I'd gotten from the Lord was so profound. So he's to keep from being conceited. A thorn was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. He didn't just, he didn't just toss up a little prayer one time on his way to work while he was driving his car. He, he begged the Lord. He was pleading that it would be removed. And yet God does not remove it. Go on to the next verse there for me, Doug. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. Do those things sound like victory to you? But yet he's content in them. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul has this thing. The Apostle Paul, author of most of the New Testament, has this thing where he's not walking in victory. He can't get over it. He can't get past it. He's thrown in prison. He's thrown in jail. And even though he has this realization that even though he's not experiencing victory circumstantially, he knows that the battle has already been won. He knows that he belongs in Christ. So we are not given victory in everything, but please hear me right now. We as Christians can ask for victory in anything. We are not promised it in everything, but we can ask for it in anything. How, how ridiculous does it feel to just ask that these forest fires would stop? And yet like, okay, I'm, I'm still kind of wigging out about this. We sent, a, we sent out the prayer request to pray for the fire, to pray for the weather change. I, I'm not wrong, right? Like there was no rain in the forecast. Like, I'm not trying to pretend like a miracle's happening when, they're, when they're, it's not happening, because I don't think God needs us to make a show for him. But it's raining, right? So, so, so we ask for things that are miraculous because we serve the God of miracles. Like, God is still moving. He's still doing things. You may have a diagnosis. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pray that God would heal that, may, that relationship may be crumbling, but that doesn't mean you don't pray and ask that God would give you victory and he would restore that relationship. We should be asking for victory. There are things I think that we are so content to tolerate. We go, well, that's just what it is. Maybe not. Maybe we should be praying that God would move, that he would intervene, that he would break through, that he would provide a miracle, that he would make a way when there is no way. That's who he is. And so we should ask for God to move. We should be begging him for victory in anything. But again, it does not mean we're promised victory over everything. Now, what I want to focus on for the rest of my time today is I think there's really three primary areas that God is going to be available for us to be walking in more victory. So yes, we could spend time focusing on how to pray for victory in your health, victory in your finances, victory in your relationships. But I think there's three far more important areas that we should be seeking out victory in our life. And that's in the way that we behave. That's in the way we think. And it's in the way we feel. Those are three primary battlegrounds that are going to be taking place because we're in a battle. 
So, so there was a lot of questions submitted about, you know, how, how did the devil fall out of heaven and all those kinds of fun topics and stuff like that. And, and what we read in scripture is that, is that uh, you know, thousands and thousands, however many years before humankind was here, uh, there was a rebellion in heaven. So heaven was this perfect place of peace and unity and the will of God was being done perfectly. And then Lucifer, Satan, rebelled against God and his ways. And in that rebellion, he lost and God kicked him out of heaven and he fell to the earth. And he fell with a bunch of his angels, now demons, right, came down to the earth and now they're on the earth. And eventually God promises that once, just as once they were pushed from heaven down to earth, he's going to come back again and Jesus is going to push them from earth down into hell. And that's where they're going to be forever for eternity. But that, but that ultimate victory has not happened yet. And so we live in this already not yet tension, right? We've talked about this all the time as a church, I feel like, where we're living in a time where Jesus has purchased some things for us to be experienced right now. We can experience his grace. We can experience his love, his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his peace, his justice. All these things can be experienced right now, kind of, but they will be experienced in their fullness once he consummates the end and he brings, he makes the new heaven, new earth, and he consummates things in the end of time, right? But still right now we're stuck in this battleground and the enemy is going to meet us. He's going to fight us in these three primary arenas that I just talked about in the way we behave, in these actions, these things that we do. He's also going to mess with our mind. He's going to get in our head. He's going to get in our thoughts. He's going to whisper things to us. And he's going to try and keep us from walking in the victory that we can experience right now. And he's going to try and keep us subdued. He's going to try and keep us oppressed with where we're at right now in the way that we act, in the way that we think, and then ultimately in the way that we desire. Because God's primarily after changing your heart's desires. Like more rules will not make your kids less rebellious. The harsh reality to embrace as a parent. If my kids are rebelling, I don't give them more rules to make them obey. What I need is for the Holy Spirit to change their heart. I need, I need for that obedience to come from the inside and work its way out. And so Paul outlines for us what this battle looks like in Romans chapter 8. And he's going to use two different contrasting ideas. He's going to use the flesh and he's going to pit that against the spirit. The flesh is you behaving without God. The spirit is you behaving with God. And so he outlines for us this battle. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Let me stop right here. Some of you have this feeling in your heart that you're maybe not saved because of a behavior that keeps creeping up in your life. And you're convinced that because I keep stumbling in this sin, I'm maybe not a Christian. But what Paul outlines for us here, what he makes even more clear in Ephesians chapter one, is that if you have conviction in you that knows something you just did was wrong, then you have the spirit indwelling you. And if the spirit's indwelling you, that means you are saved. God is convicting you because he loves you. And so if there's fight in you not to sin, you may not lose that fight. Or you might not win that fight every time. But if there's fight in you, there's faith in you. And if there's faith in you, then you are saved and you belong to Jesus. So he keeps on going to say, 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Keep going for me, Doug. There you go. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And this is maybe one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, this next one. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, always have victory, we don't always have victory. We're going to suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there's this tension that Paul introduces us to, where there's this fight between our spirit and our flesh. And, and what I want to kind of outline now, I have seven ways that we can be built up in our spirit so that we can put to death the flesh. But you have to understand before we even get into it, that it's that violent of a process. It's all, it's, it's not saying like, okay, just kind of try and not do that with your flesh, but it's put it to death, put it to death, fight it with your life. Because what the flesh is trying to do, what you are trying to do apart from God is always going to lead to death. But the spirit is the source of life. He's the source of this abundant life that would fill you up, that would help you walk in victory. Again, victory in the way that you behave, victory in the way that you think, and victory, victory in the way that you desire. And so the first one, how do you walk in victory? How do we do it? How do we walk in victory? I think the first thing that we have to understand is the difference between conviction and condemnation. We have to understand the, the difference between the voice of conviction and the voice of condemnation. Both of those voices are going to speak up as soon as we've made a mistake. As soon as we've sinned, both voices are going to start speaking. They, they both will at least acknowledge the mistake. But what conviction is always going to do is it's always going to lead you back to the person of Jesus. It's always going to lead you back to your identity in Christ. It's always going to lead you back to God's kindness, God's love, God's mercy. It's always going to say, hey, that was wrong, but you're not going to go that way. You're going to come this way because this is what you did, but that is not who you are. You are in Christ. You need to come back to him. He loves you. He has been kind to you. He has poured out everything for you. The voice of condemnation, however, is going to be the voice of the devil. The voice of conviction is the voice of the Holy Spirit. The voice of condemnation is the voice of the devil. The voice of condemnation, of condemnation is going to say things like, yeah, you did that again. Of course you did that again. You're always going to keep doing that. You're going to keep doing that just like your dad did that, just like his dad did that. You're going to keep on messing that up. You're, you're, not, going to, you're not going to find healing from this. You're just, you are sick. You're always going to be sick. The voice of condemnation is always going to speak and try and keep you exactly where you're at. And it's going to try and heap shame on you. It's going to try and continue to heap guilt on you. And it's going to, it's going to be opposite. It's going to be contrary to your identity that is in Christ. And so what we need to learn is we need to learn the difference between those two voices so that when condemnation starts speaking, I can say that is not the voice of Jesus. That is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is not who I actually am. And then I'm going to say, God, Holy Spirit, what, how would you have me behave? And he's going to say, yeah, that was wrong, but that is not who you are. 
you're going to come this way as a son, as a daughter, as a fellow heir with Christ, come back to me. But we have to be able to tease out those two voices because both are going to speak up when we make a mistake. One's going to try and keep us there though, and one's going to invite us back into life. And that is the voice of the Spirit. The second one that we need to be in is prayer. Prayer. We have to be in prayer. If you haven't prayed since last week when you were at church and we prayed at the beginning of the service or the end of the service, you need to pray. What prayer is going to consistently do is it's going to take our ears off of the things that we're hearing in this world. And are we hearing so much right now? But prayer is going to say, I'm not listening to that right now. I'm going to listen for my father's voice who's in heaven. Prayer takes our eyes off the circumstances that we find ourselves in and it fixes our gaze up on heaven. It detaches our mind from the reality of the world that we're sitting in today. And it says, okay, God, who am I really? Speak to me. What is my purpose from you? Where would you have me go? And as we detach from all of these other inputs that we have into our life here on earth and we fix our mind up on heaven, that is what prayer should look like. It should not just be these prayers that are so built on our circumstances of the things around us where we're going, okay, God, would you help this? Would you help do that? Would you help solve that? Again, God is interested in that. We, I'm not saying we should not ever be lifting up our circumstances to God in prayer. He is the God of miracles. But please don't let that be the only way that you pray. Tune your gaze, fix your ears, lift up your thought and your mind to what's happening in heaven when you're praying. God, would you speak to me? Would you show me something? The other way that I think we need to be like understanding of prayer that, that is in scripture is that we should be, if you can, we should be praying in a prayer language. This is a weird one for me to go into, but I, I felt like I could not avoid it because it's so clear in scripture that praying in tongues is one of the best ways to build up your spirit. Okay, now all my cards on the table here for a sec, okay? I don't pray in tongues. I don't have a prayer language. I have a lot of people that I love and trust around me that do. And I know a lot of you, maybe even me saying that, you're like, man, that's weird. It is weird. I've heard it before, right? And you heard someone praying tongues, you're like, that's weird. But Paul is clear in his, in his letter to the Corinthian church, his first letter, chapter 14, where he says the prayer, prayer in a prayer language, prayer in tongues is to build up a person's spirit. And he's showing us why tongues isn't as appropriate in the public gathering without interpretation. He says, I would rather speak five words of prophecy than 10,000 words in tongues. That is a dramatic statement. But he doesn't say that praying in tongues is unimportant. He says in that very same passage, but I, and I pray in tongues more than any of you. And he is consistently going, I'm building, it's, it's for the building up of the individual, for this intimate connection with God. And, and, and in that, we are built up, building up our spirit so that we can stand strong against our flesh. And, and I know that's weird and I know it's crazy, but guess what? We're going to pray for it at the end of this service today. Uh, and I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know what a ministry time is where we ask for tongues, but we're just going to say, okay, Holy Spirit, if you're willing, do it. Because if you got it, Lord, I want it. Amen? Amen. So there's prayer. That's weird. We'll come back to it later. It's awesome. The next one is fasting. It's, it's shocking to me how few uh, Christians have actually ever fasted before. 
And, and fasting, what I love is the practicality of just saying no to your flesh. Your flesh wells up and it's like, oh, I'm hungry, feed me. And you in this like power move get to just say no. Just feel, see how good this feels. Turn to your neighbor real quick and just say no. No. Turn to another neighbor and just someone that you don't even know and just be like, no, I will not. I, I am the, uh, my kids are super into trading stuff like cards and toys and whatnot with themselves and then with other friends as they come over. And one of my friends is like, yeah, you got to just become the official trade master of your house. So I did. I was like, there are no trades that will happen under my roof without my express authorization or approval. So I have these, I have my kids are coming to me. They got like, hey, can we trade these toys? And, and sometimes I'll tell you what, the trade is perfectly reasonable. It's two like equal value toys. And they're like, can we trade this? And I'll just, just a power move. It's total just like this power swelling up in me where I'm just like, no, you can't, right? There's something that happens like in you that is puffed up when you say no. And that is why fasting is so valuable because like some of you are so caught up in this sin and you want to break from this behavior, but you're, you're waiting too long to say no. And you're waiting until the devil has tempted you and has brought you into this. And this honey looks so sweet in this moment and he's brought you into it. And that is not the time to practice saying no because he'll continually win in that space. So fasting steps away from the immediate temptation and it, it, it just is the practice in your body of saying no to your flesh and saying yes to your spirit. It's, it's working those muscles out, doing those reps so that you can practice just going, no, 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 wait, flesh, you're not in charge of me. You are not, like, I'm gonna decide when to feed you. You may scream at me through hunger pain and I'm gonna decide when to feed you. And my spirit's in charge of me. My spirit man is built up when I'm fasting. My spirit man is strong. My flesh is put to death. My flesh is weakened. The next one that we'll talk about is worship. Worship. And I'm talking specifically about musically worshiping. Okay, I'm not talking about a lifestyle of worship. I'm talking about specifically just listening and singing and lifting up worship music. I, I, like the, I think it's so valuable to just, to just have time, space built into every single one of your days where you are listening, listening to and singing worship music. Well, Austin, I don't, I don't like Way FM. Can I tell you something? I don't really either. So find some worship music you like. You've got Spotify on your phone. You've got YouTube on your phone. Find somebody you like and listen to it. When we're worshiping, you realize this is the only space in our existence right now, walking here on the earth, where we're going to be able to worship in the middle of difficult circumstances. For the rest of eternity, everything's going to be awesome. There will be no problems. And so right now is the only time that we actually get to lift up songs of praise through pain, through suffering. And so like how valuable is it for you to detach from whatever talk show radio you're listening to, to whatever worship music you're listening or whatever secular music you're listening to in the car and you just go, okay, for a moment here, I'm gonna align my thoughts. I'm gonna align my voice with what's happening in heaven. And, and this is, okay, I'm not saying don't ever listen to secular music, but, but here's a great John Wesley quote that I think will help capture what I am saying, I think. He's a little harsh in this. John Wesley and his brother Charles wrote 6,500 hymns, by the way. I told you this morning, I said, we got work to do. You got work to do. 6,500 hymns, bro. It's insane. He says, sing lustily and with good courage and with good courage. 
Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, no more ashamed of it being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. John, bro, like that's, but what he's getting at is this tension. Like, you know, every Bruno Mars song, you know, the Justin Bieber, you know, Tim McGraw, and you sing those in your car heartily and you sing them with good courage. Don't let that be your voice and then let your voice in church be this dinky little, eh, like, you know, whatever. But sing with the same courage that you sing that secular music. Like, I got to just shout out my son Harrison right here. Like, I am trying to worship like this guy worships. He just like, he, first of all, he, you, you can't even read. He can't even read. And he knows all the lyrics to the songs we're singing. And he sits down here and he screams them screams him so loud. And I'm just like, I'm trying to sing as loud as this guy right here. Sing this stuff with courage. Like, don't let the, the, the way you lift up your voice at a concert be different than the way that you lift up your voice in church. Sing when you're in church. Sing heartily with good courage. Sing lustily. I love that. Cry out for Jesus when you're singing in church. Find some space in your schedule to worship. Line your voice up with the voices in heaven. Community is number five. So we have the difference between conviction and condemnation. Number one, prayer, fasting, worship, and community. You need to find some people who will love you enough to tell you the truth. Like we are, we are missing in our culture right now the ability to have friends who are allowed to offend us where the relationship stays intact. But you need to find yourself some friends that are willing to speak truth into your life that'll possibly offend you, that'll possibly make you mad. I'm so grateful for some of the guys that I have in my life who know everything about me and they can tell me no. They can speak that truth into my life. I'm looking for friends whose voice will match what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. They're not gonna be the Holy Spirit's voice, but they're gonna amplify his voice in my ear. They're gonna say, no, no, that's not right. You can't do that. You gotta turn around. You gotta go the other way. Guys who are gonna consistently bring me closer and closer and back to, like with Jesus and who he is and who he says I am, that their voice is gonna line up with what the Holy Spirit's saying. I think every single one of us needs to just kind of check our circle. You, you think about your like closest five friends and the influence they have on you. And especially you young people in the room, like if you are the smartest in your group, if you are the most faith-filled person in that group, if you pray like more than anyone else in that group prays, you need to find some new friends. Like some of you, I feel like maybe you're just so caught up in this behavior and you're just a couple of friendships away from fixing it. Because you're let, you have these friends who will just tolerate, who will enable, who will let you walk in this way that you should not be walking. You need to find yourself some good friends who will say, hey, no, that behavior that you just did, that thing that you just did, that's not who we are. Come on, come with me. You need that, like that Samwise Gamgee. I can't carry the ring for you, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you, right? Who's like, you're about to walk this way. And it's like, I, might, I can't take that away from you, but I can pick you up and go this way. We're not doing that anymore. You need some community around you. You need, and this is, what, this is what we all have to hear because I think we all hear it in church all the time. We gotta find community, find community. Once you get in community, you gotta be vulnerable. You have to actually open up. Like to be vulnerable means that someone has the capacity to wound you with the information they just heard. 
But you have to be willing to put yourself out there so that friends can really know who you are and they can help enter into that space, into that hurting, into that behavior, and they can say, hey, come on, we're going this way. That's not who you are. I'm not gonna let the devil whisper those things in your ear, right? Get some friends who will line up with what the Holy Spirit's trying to speak to you. Number six is we gotta get in front of the mirror. In Psalm 139, I think we love to quote it, verse 23, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How many of you prayed that before? Right? Lots of us. I don't really think of it that often, but David's kind of having a personal breakdown right before that verse. So, So starting in verse 19, if you back it up, of Psalm 139, he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Don't I hate those who hate you, Lord? And don't I, don't I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. What's David doing in this sense? He's just pointing. Look at, look at what they're doing out there. Are you kidding me? What? Those guys hate you. I hate them too. But then once we get to verse 23, he quits pointing out there. He points back at himself. He gets in front of a mirror. I just think the, in the day, in the culture, in the age we're living in right now, it is so easy to lob grenades at other people. You're the reason for the problem. That circumstance is the reason I'm not walking in victory. Once I get rid of that thing, once I get overcome that deal, once that party gets elected, once that person gets in office, then my problems will go away. That's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to get in front of the mirror and to beg the Holy Spirit, God, would you search me? Show me any space that my heart is off. And would you do the work here before I'm critical of what's happening out there? That has to happen first. It has to happen first. We have to get in front of the mirror and we have to go, okay, Holy Spirit, test me in this. What's going on? What's going on in my heart, Lord? Like we just, we can't, he, David in this verse, he's so focused on the external circumstances that are driving his current uh, position But what we have to come to eventually is we can't rely on whatever is happening around us circumstantially to drive whether or not we're going to walk in victory. Eventually, we got to just get in front of a mirror and go, okay, why do I have this sin in my heart? It's not just because, like, like the devil didn't make you do it. Can I just say that this morning? Like, the the devil put something in front of you that you already wanted to do. That's called temptation, so, so maybe in some rare circumstances, the devil made you do it. But most often, the devil is just going to put something in front of you that your heart already desires. And so we have to take that look in the mirror and go, okay, God, where am I off? Where, where do I still need transformed? Where do I still need change? Where do I still need to be made new on, on the inside of me? And that leads us to the last one. The last thing you need if you're going to walk in victory is you need a savior. You need a savior. In Romans chapter seven, my wife just preached on this whole message up in youth group and, and she was showing me just the beautiful picture that Paul lays out in Romans chapter seven, where he, he paints this picture showing that, you know what, like before Christ comes in you, before the Holy Spirit, before you, before then, you were, you were in this relationship with your flesh. You were in this relationship with sin that you couldn't get out of. Like we're bound to it is what the Bible would say. We're in bondage. We're enslaved to what our flesh wants to do. 
And then, and then what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say, hey, I want to I be married to your life. And before I can be married to you, that thing has to die that you're currently married to. So he says, I want to I kill that relationship. I want to put that sin in the grave. I want to put your flesh in the grave so that I can plant a new life in you. And the only way that happens is by coming to the point where you go, Jesus, would you be the center? Would you be the treasure of my heart? If I could just delineate what's going to make a Christian versus a non-Christian, it would be the Christian at the deepest part of who we are. We crave Jesus and his kingdom over everything else. We go say, God, I want you. I want your ways. I want your will to be done. For the non-Christian, you can put anything else in that box. You could put yourself, you could put your family, you could put golf, you could put money, you could put relationships, like all these other things that are at the deepest core of who you are. That's what I want is something different than who Jesus is. But as soon as you say, no, okay, I'm turning to you, Lord. I'm turning and facing you. At that moment, what happens is there is a breaking that the, that the power of sin, the power of death no longer has you enslaved. And Jesus breaks that bondage and he invites you into a new life filled with his spirit. You cannot expect to walk in victory if you're not gonna submit and turn to Jesus as your Lord and savior. So would you stand up? I'd like to pray for us now. And I just wanna invite anyone who is not, Maybe you just were like, okay, wait, I don't think Jesus is my greatest treasure. I've been coming to church for a little bit, but man, he's not who I want. The beautiful thing is as soon as, as, soon as you say, Jesus, you're all I want, he's gonna start making the things you want, the things that he wants. And he's gonna start transforming your heart. He's gonna start renewing the way that you want to behave. He's gonna change the things that you desire. And so I'm gonna pray right now. Would you pray with me, Lord, for anyone in this room who wants to turn to you today, we just invite it, Lord. Would your, your Holy Spirit is already knocking at their door. They already want to break free from this behavior. They wanna break out of this anxiousness. They wanna break out of this feeling that they cannot not, like stop doing the things that they don't wanna do. And God, I pray right now you would meet them as they turn and set their face towards you. Jesus, I pray that we would acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior. And in a moment, God, would you fill up anybody in this room who doesn't know you with your Holy Spirit? Would you plant that life in them? Would you loosen and break the, the chains of sin that are in our heart? Jesus, um, we also just ask that your Holy Spirit and your wisdom would give anyone right now in this moment a prayer language that they, that they need to build up their spirit, God. God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would fall. I don't even know what that would look like. I, there's no way I could like falsify or like drum up this moment to make it something that it's not. I just pray that if you have that for somebody, then we want it. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would give it to him right now in Jesus' name. God, I pray in all this, we would realize our desperation for us to be built up in your spirit, in us, God. God, for every believer in, in here, whether we're walking with a behavior we wanna kick or uh, with an with a anxious thought or a, a, something that's plaguing our mind that we wanna get rid of, God, would you fill us up right now in this moment? Would you show us that we need to press into this battle, that this battle can be won in Jesus' name? Would your Holy Spirit fill us up today? Lord, we love you. We need you. None of it's gonna happen without you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen.